Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Cultivate awareness through mindfulness practice and cultivate kindness and 
self-compassion through the loving-kindness meditation. And over time began to see, began to illuminate both the voice and the, the range of the critic, but also ways that I could learn to not buy into its uh, messaging, not believe what it was saying, and also find a kinder, caring, more uh, compassionate way of dealing with my own distress and, and, and life challenges. So you began to do these practices, and then you found that you yourself began to shift to that calmer and more compassionate perspective. Yeah, you know, it takes a while. I, what I say to people who do any kind of meditation practices, you know, that one does those things for the long haul in that there's no instant meditation pill. And, uh, you know, it takes practice, it takes training, it takes some discipline and inspiration. And so in the beginning, you know, it's one who's just learning to train one's mind to be present, to focus. And over time, then we can develop a much deeper self-awareness and to understand more of the mystery and complexity and profundity of who we are. And we can also learn to see, you know, the point of mindfulness is, is, is in service of clarity and understanding and insight and an insight into understanding our human condition, understand how we create a lot of our stress and pain and how we can find ways to find well-being and uh, integrity and uh, satisfaction. And so I began to see that one of the voices, one of the habits and mental tendencies that I and people around me had was this theme of self-judgment, of having high standards of a sense of perfectionism, never thinking that what we do or say good enough And so I began to pay attention to this voice. And the first epiphany I had was I was meditating. I I forget what I'd done that day, but I was really down on myself or something. And I, so the critic, the inner critic, this critical voice um, was lashing out at myself for, for something I'd done. And it was very, and instead of, usually we're very aligned with that voice and we agree with its judgments and its views and we think we're right to punish and judge ourselves. But I actually took some time to just feel what it's like to be on the receiving end of the judgments and the criticisms and the attacks. And it's incredibly painful. It's a bit like if you imagine you know, a friend or a stranger, for that matter, talking to you with judgment and harshness and, and sometimes cruelty the way that we could talk to ourselves. We wouldn't stand up for, for, for a minute, but we let our own minds really persecute ourselves with uh, judgments and criticism, and they're not just the judgment like, oh, that was that was a you know not a great performance at work, or that was not a great uh, you know performance you know in soccer practice or whatever. But it's really it's an attack on our on the very essence of who we are, to attack on our value, on our worth, on our well-being, which is why it has such a lot of impact. So two questions. One, first of all, where does that voice of self-judgment come from? So my understanding, and this. And there's also, you know, Freud was very clear and various descendants of Freud. You know, the, the understanding is that as children, you know, we have these very powerful impulses in, 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 as infants, you know, both strong emotions, passions, likes, dislikes, preferences. And um, those, for us to fit in with our family and our culture and society and church and the, the norms, of, of where we grew up, children generally need to learn how to, how to restrain 
some of those tendencies and habits and impulses and emotions, and whether it's anger or fear or jealousy or rage. And so um, the psyche develops the, the, the superego, which is a structure in the mind that, that uses shame to shut down those, those habits and tendencies. So it's very effective as a young child if you're needing to fit in with it, with you know, with your parents and family and society, and you're wanting to maximize that flow of love and affection, then you, you know, it's important that you learn how to navigate that terrain. So we, what we, how we navigate it is by shutting it down. The which was functional at the time when we were three and four and seven. However, when we're 27 and 53, we still have that same voice. It's still shutting us down for not being right, not being good enough, for not fitting in, for being vulnerable, for looking uh, imperfect or, you know, running the risk of being criticized by people around us. So we operate the same kind of circuitry, um, but it's no longer relevant or helpful in the way that it might have been useful at, at times when we were young. And mm-hmm. so that's why, we, that's why we need to pay attention to it, because that, that those neural pathways of judgment and self-criticism and shaming and putting ourselves down and fault-finding, if they become entrenched, as they are for most people, they're significant contributors to depression, to anxiety, to feeling low esteem, to not feeling good enough, and all the, all the things that come out of those, those states of mind. So the very voices, the very tendencies, the very things that we learned help us get along in society as infants are then really uh, very unhelpful to us when we're still relying on those later in our lives. I'm just curious, why, why are we so much harder on ourselves than other people are on us? You've mentioned how you were saying things in your own head that you would never tolerate your worst enemy saying to you, and when you're in that moment of self-criticism, why, why are we so incredibly harsh on ourselves? You know, it's a really great question, and I think my, my, my guess at that is that, you know, the, the critic's functioning is it's trying to make us, you know, improve us, and encourage us, and to make us be the kind of person that people are like, where we have success, where we don't fail, where we get approval, um, you know, basically to be a better person so that we will be liked and cared for. And so, and that, that very basic primary instinct, and we're social animals, so we want to be liked and accepted and approved of and loved. And I think that, you know, that mechanism is as developed and as mature as we might be as adults those very primary impulses of wanting to be liked and loved and accepted and to fit in um, are very strong. And so the critic keeps reminding us all the ways that we don't do that or put ourselves at risk. And so it sort of takes on a life of its own, and when it's left unchecked, gets very vocal, gets loud, gets more aggressive. And the more we believe it, the more we listen to it, the more we listen to it, the more we're impacted. And so it becomes this very painful self-perpetuating cycle, tormenting ourselves with these impossibly high standards and demands, rather than accepting our humanness, our imperfections, our foibles, our natural mistakes we make as a human being. Uh, instead, it has this rigid idea of, of, of perfection and high standards, which is impossible for any of us to live up to. 
it is impossible. One of the one of the ways that shows up for me, Mark, is that I give quite a few keynote speeches every year. And one of the things that I do is I prepare myself for them. I prepare the speeches very carefully. I prepare myself spiritually for every speech. When I'm in front of a big crowd, I, I, I meditate usually that morning for an hour or two. I'm really centered. And um, often when I reach the end of my speech, people just jump to their feet. They're often they're cheering, they're clapping, they're giving me a standing ovation. And then as I, and I stand there, I just receive it and give thanks for all the energy in the room. But then as I walk off the stage, usually what my mind is revolving around is, gee, you know, around minute 30, when I use that analogy of the key ring, I don't think I made that totally clear. I could have been clearer about that image. Or I'll have a thought like, oh, you know, uh, that was a great speech, but, you know, I mean, I bet Tony Robbins would have done this better. <laughs> Something there's always some little bit of self criticism there, and it's like I, I just have a lot of this this, this 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 critic. You know, he's 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 never happy, never satisfied, he's never good enough. No matter how good it is, it's never good enough for him. And uh, so it, it it is it is really this this, this it's, it's so interesting. Despite all of our years of personal growth work, that that critic can still be loud and still be completely unrelenting, no matter how excellent we are. Yeah, you know, and I think it helps to you know to understand as as, as you know all too well the that this really comes from our circuitry. Our hardwiring is oriented towards the negativity bias, towards what's threatening, to what's potentially fearful and problematic in our environment. And so we're oriented towards what's wrong. And of course, our culture and our education training and whatnot can strengthen that. And so you would give a great example. I'm also a public speaker. And we might give you know a stellar speech or a lecture or a talk but because of the negativity bias, our brain is only tracking for that which wasn't good, perfect. And again, it's driven by not just whether it was a good or bad speech, but it's driven by what are the consequences, the consequences of me or the fear of me not giving a speech is people might not like it, they may not invite me back, maybe I'll stop being invited to give talks, maybe I'll run out of work, maybe this is going to negatively impact my career and my livelihood and my retirement. So it all comes back to this very basic survival fear. And unfortunately, what happens is we've come to rely on the critic as the judge of selves, our performance, art, or whatever it, whatever it is that we do in the world. And it's a very distorted, misguided, inaccurate uh, perception. It's only looking at the fault. So you get a two-hour great presentation. There's one or two places where it could have been refined. But all we see is, the, is, is those two places. And of course, that's a very distorted uh, perspective, but that's true of all the things, whether we're, we're a parent or a coach or a business leader or, you know, who knows what your work is, the critic will look at the, at the what wasn't perfect from his, its perspective and then really be harsh with us. And so, the, so it's really obvious, like in your example, how useful it is not to listen to the critic, to notice the judgment. And then, you know, I'll, I'll do something like, thank you for your opinion, thank you for your opinion, very interesting, and I'm going to actually look at the bigger picture and see what's really more accurate. Now, Mark, you talked earlier about the whole act of making it conscious and being there with it rather than unconscious. I think many people, they simply believe it's true. They simply are unconsciously driven by its criticisms. But it's very powerful to do what you described, what you did that, that day long ago, of actually sitting with it, listening to it, and being conscious, bringing it to the, the act 
get a ring at the cognitive. Um, what did you do that day? What have you done since? And how can we learn to do that as well? So, you know, the, what I've appreciated about mindfulness practice is it's allowed me to use that clarity of awareness to be really clear when I'm thinking versus when I'm judging. And the way I delineate judging is that judgment in, in this context is a statement of criticism that's really about our worth as a human being. Quite different from a discrimination or an evaluation or an assessment. So just in your, in your case, you can make an assessment. You know, it was a great presentation, a couple of places I could have refined it, but basically it was a good talk. The critic comes in and says, well, you blew it. I mean, you, you know, there, 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 there were those people that, you know, you just really were, were, were foggy and, and people were, you know, clueless and, you know, what a waste of time. And, 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 and you must be there for, you know, a waste of time yourself. And so it moves from the data to actually, well, you're a bad person as a result and people won't likely like you and you need to get yourself together and it's all a bit hopeless. So mindfulness helps bring that awareness, self-awareness internally to see when the judgments are happening. And then it's important when we see the judgment to actually recognize, oh, and make a label, oh, judging, now that's the judgment. We label it, we see it, and that awareness actually allows us to both both take a step back from it and go, wait a minute, do I want to listen to this voice? Is this is this voice really true? Is it accurate? I basically want to have a sense of I'm noticing it, thank you for your point of view, and not interested today. No, thank you. That's not really actually very accurate or helpful. You might take a moment to see, oh, this is coming from the, the critics coming out of a place of vulnerability of saying, oh, right, it's, it's getting amped, amped up because it, you know, wants, it wants, it wants, needs me to be liked and to be approved of when I speak and it's trying perhaps in a distorted way to help me, but actually it's hindering me because it's making me feel bad about myself. So I'm going to notice it. I'm going to let it go and actually come back to either the task at hand or more accurate self-deception. And then, or, you know, I'll come back into present moment reality because normally the judge takes us into a whole mental realm that's not really present. So, and then we move on. So thank you, you know, and, and so I'll often, you know, I, I give this analogy of like a Tai Chi move rather than try to rationalize, you know, oh no, it was a really good talk. Look at those 73 points that were good. Really, I really am a good speaker. And we get into this dance. When we do that, we've already given the authority to the judge by giving it the time of day. So we won't want to just acknowledge it. Very interesting. Have a nice day. But no thank you. And then we come back to, you know, whatever our task is at hand. I think that act that you mentioned earlier of labeling it is a very healthy one. I know I call mine the inner CEO or my inner Captain Bly or something like that. And just the act of actually labeling it is a way of this is seeing yourself, giving yourself perspective, and laughing at it too, which robs us of this power. Right, right. Yeah, there's, there's something very powerful about affect labeling, and it's the same with the critic. As soon as we label it, we have more of a discriminating awareness, and, and then and then we can see, oh, I know this voice. This voice tends to just lead towards me feeling bad and miserable, and I don't need to listen to it. I don't need to look through it to, to assess whether something was good, bad, or otherwise. I can I can have other better useful ways to evaluate myself or my work or my performance or whatever. Yeah, I also love four questions that Byron Katie asks, and the fourth of those four questions, one variant of them is, 
who would I be without that story? So you say your critic give you the story, give you that old criticism, and then you think, well, what if I just didn't believe this? <laughs> right. What if I didn't go there? Right. And then the other the other way of looking at it is, well, what if I do believe it? Even if I do believe it, even if I think it's true that I messed up on those two small points in the talk, so what? Okay, so I'm human, and that happened, and I may have, could have done, you know, refined that study or that data point or whatever. Who cares? You know, so, because we, we sometimes fear the critic because we think it's right. And from my point of view, it doesn't matter if it's right. It's fine. It's, it, and it, and maybe, maybe it is accurate. Maybe we did forget to call our mother on a birthday. And, but, and that data point is, you, know, you can't argue with that. But then we can challenge the assumption that comes from that, which is, therefore, you must be a bad person because you forgot your mother's birthday. So, um, so that, with that, with that retort that I sometimes use, which is, oh, thank you for your opinion. Yes, it is right. I did, uh, you know, lose my keys on my way to give a mindfulness lecture. You know, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day. I often make a joke to myself because I can't find something in my house and I'm, I'm supposed to be teaching people about mindfulness. I use a little humor and then uh, it takes the sting out of the critic. I like that distinction as well between what I did and who I am that you're drawing over there. So the inner critic generalizes to go beyond what I did to indict who I am. It, you, you lost your keys, therefore you're a schmuck. You lost your keys, therefore what kind of a teacher are you? You lost your keys, therefore you're a failure. That, I think, is a really good guide to consciousness of that inner critic and consciousness when that's the, the voice that's going off in your head. Yes, very much so. I think, I think the main distinction with the critic is we move from a judgment, you know, like good talk, great talk, not great talk, terrible talk, from that to, therefore, you must be a terrible person. You must be worthless. You must be useless. You must be unlovable. You must be pathetic. You must be someone who's never going to be able to talk well. And that's really what we're interrupting. You know, we're interrupting that basically it's an attack on our worth as a person. And we have to find that place where we know, you know, a human being worthy of love. We have innate goodness. We, we do our best with all our challenges of life and our conditioning. And that, that has to be the bedrock, not you'll be good and lovable if you do X, Y, and Z. If you do all the things that the critic and the manager and the tyrant and the taskmaster tell you to do, then you can rest. No, you're actually a good person now. Can you access that? Can you see these messages that come in that are really not so helpful? I know that means where meditation comes in because with meditation, I feel that sense of being loved, the sense of being affirmed, the sense of being okay the way I am. So if I'm sick, if I'm in pain, if I maybe I have had some kind of bad thing happen or done some kind of thing that I think really wasn't as high as it could have been, then when I go to meditation, I have a sense of being so loved, so unconditionally accepted. And so I think the more you practice meditation, the more you have access to that voice of complete unconditional love and acceptance. Mark, let's talk a little bit now about the techniques you use to counteract that inner critic. Explore scenarios where the inner critic appears, how the inner critic indicts you, how it was useful at an early age, but now as an adult it's no longer useful. It's really, really an impediment to have those voices running. So let's now talk about some of the things we can actually do, the common techniques we can use to either modify, shift, become conscious of, or perhaps, dare I say it, even silence the inner critic. 
Yes, so um, this is really what I call in the book the critic toolkit, and it's really a set of skills and techniques and practices that are really come in handy. And we talked about some mindfulness, recognizing, noticing, labeling, challenging, but there are many other practices. One set of practices is really bringing a more heartful response. So the critic, as I said, attacks one's worth and value. And, you know, dealing with life and ourselves and each other is hard enough. And then we have the critic telling us we're not good enough. So we get a double whammy of, you know, how to navigate through life with difficulty. And so the I talk a lot about the the wing of compassion, how it's essential that we learn to meet ourselves with kindness, with friendliness, with forgiveness, with compassion. And so there's a chapter in the book called 2020 Hindsight, where the critic, as we know, has 2020 hindsight can always look back and say, oh, well, you could have, would have, should have done this, that, and the other. And then, of course, how do we know that person we dated was crazy or that stock was going to tumble into the oblivion or who knows whatever else we we decided to do. And so, so we, it's important that we learn to both meet the pain of the critic with kindness, we meet ourselves with caring response, and we can also develop a heartful uh, loving-kindness practice, which I think is really one of the most powerful antidotes for critics. And how that goes, using thoughts in the same way that the critic does, we basically learn to practice wishing ourselves well, wishing for our deepest happiness, wishing and expressing our care for ourselves. And so that practice is using phrases like, may I be well, may I be safe, may I be free from suffering, may I love myself just as I am, may I accept myself, May may I know my own goodness. And so one of the things I ask people to do is ask each time they hear the critic to just offer themselves a phrase of kindness. Like the critic might say, well, you're just stupid. And then I'll offer them, and may I be happy. Yeah, but you're never going to get your life together. And may I be peaceful. Yeah, but look at that thing you said yesterday at work. That was really stupid. And may I be at ease. And so we're learning to counteract those judgments with simple, caring statements. And that that has a surprising impact over time when we do that, particularly in a meditation form where we sit with ourselves for a few minutes or longer a day and actually just express that very opposite uh, attitude uh, from the critic. And just as I did when I started feeling the impact of the pain of my critic uh, on the heart, the more we can uh, become... Take, take the perspective of ourselves, we become aligned with ourselves rather than enemy of ourselves. And so that's when we start to find a sense of a wholeness and integration where we don't abandon ourselves at the words of the critic, but actually we take care of ourselves. So that, that's one domain where we can learn to have a more compassionate, kind, caring attitude for ourselves and the pain where the, the critic came from and hold it all with forgiveness. I imagine, too, that being with people who reinforce either one voice or the other is important. Like being with people who appreciate you, love you, and affirm you is important if you have your own fierce and a critic rather than being with people who are reinforcing it. Exactly. No, definitely very important the people who we surround ourselves with. And we want to be mindful of, you know, if we're in environments that reaffirm that sense of negative self-judgment. And, you know, since... And so often we, it's hard for us to find and access our own accurate self-perception. It's important that we're around people who see us, appreciate us, and love us, and actually express what they see. And ultimately, we have to find that for ourselves, but there are many times it's really healthy to get an 
from others who don't agree with that critic. I often, on my workshops, have people write down their judgments. I have them share them with others, which, of course, is a terrifying thing in the beginning. But then people realize, oh, you have that judgment? Well, I got this one. Oh, I have that one, too. And um, and basically, we share sort of the similar judgments around the similar themes. And so we can help normalize the sense of self-judgment. And we can also get that affirmation from the outside of like, no, that that's not how, how do your critic sees you and perceives you. That's really not an accurate perception. It's not denying that we don't have our work to do and have our blind spots and foibles, but that's just part of being human. It doesn't mean to say we're a lesser or more unworthy person. So yeah. other other ways of other other strategies in the critic uh, in the in the in the critic toolkit, as I mentioned a little bit before, humor is, is, is very effective. I used to dress my imagine my critic in this grey wig like they wear and the judges wear in London, long wig and it long long wig and it would say bad person, bad meditator, bad <laughs> and, and I would just make a joke of it. Or I would, you know, as I said earlier, like, you know, I might lose my keys or get lost and I'll and I'll just make a joke, oh Mr Mindfulness wins the day, as in here I am, Mr Mindfulness teacher, you know, should know where he's going and he's spaced out and got lost. Well guess what? I'm human and so I laugh or I you know, my critic might say, "Well, you know, you're a you know you're a terrible partner. You know, you didn't listen to your spouse, and she was hurt that you weren't listening." And I might just say, "Yes, I'm the worst partner in the world. I'm the worst listener in the world." And again, just making light of the the assumption of where the critic is going. And you know, as Wavy Gravy once said, he was a wonderful clown artist. He said, "If you don't have a sense of humor, it just ain't funny." But you have to see the the, the humorous side of it, like our critic can. Tell us, you know, you know, we get up in the morning and do some exercise because we're too lazy and we need to get on with our New Year's resolution. And then in the morning, this softer side of the critic, you know, at 5.30 a.m. comes and says, you know, it's kind of early. And, you know, those researchers said sleep is really good for the brain, so why don't you take a nap? So we hit snooze. And then at 7.30, the critic manifests now, and this time not as the friendly coach, but more as the you know, aggressive tyrant and says, how come you slept in? You didn't follow through with your resolution. You're not going to get in shape. You're always falling through in your commitments. You're really just a waste of time. And so, again, we have to laugh at the critic. We can't win either way at times with this voice. Mark, I'm thinking when we talk about the inner critic and its persistence about a time when I was behind finishing up a book and I had a deadline, so I thought, you know, I'm just going to go away to Hawaii park myself there in a condo. I'm going to finish up that book by my deadline. So I did just that. I flew out to Hawaii, found a, a condo, and there I would sit with my laptop, and I just really focused on the book. So I was sitting there in the condo with my laptop in front of me, looking out the window at the beach. And my inner critic would say, Listen, Church, here you are. You're in Hawaii. Look at the weather out there. You love snorkeling. Why aren't you out there enjoying the beach? Here you are stuck in this dark condo staring at a laptop just the way you would be doing if you were home in the winter in California. You need to be out there on the beach enjoying yourself at least a little bit, surely, rather than just doing exactly what you do always do at home. So after the inner critic had hammered me for a couple of hours and distracted me in this way, eventually I just all right, then I'll do it. So I close my laptop, go down to the beach, change down to the beach with my towel and my snorkeling gear to be snorkeling around. And then my critic would pipe up and say, 
what on earth are you doing here on the beach? You came out to Hawaii, you spent thousands of dollars to rent this condo, and Bianca just to write your book, and here you are, you're supposed to write your book, and here you are on the beach. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, was, it was like, heads I win, tails you lose. I mean, I, I just get a lot of this darn thing because nothing I could do was, was right. And that was like, at a turning point in my life, I realized just how crazy this, this inner CEO was. Yeah, now that is a great example that we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And there's no way around it. If we listen to that voice, if we, if we really care about what it says, then it will follow us around, and it follows us to Hawaii, follows us to Bali or wherever it is we like to go, and it will give ourselves a hard time. You know, sometimes, and our critics take on different forms. Like some people may be very sporty, and so it gives itself gives us a hard time for not being sporty enough. Or some people's critics oriented around pleasure, so we don't you know, we're on our case for not having as much fun. And often the critics on our case for not being tidy enough or punctual enough, or nice enough, or efficient enough, or industrious enough. And so, you know, or in meditation circles, and spiritual circles, it will come into the, you know, the meditation hall, or the ashram, or wherever people go, the yoga studio, and it'll be, oh, your yoga's not good enough, and your meditation's not clear enough, and your compassion's not kind enough, and your generosity's too limited. And so, it's just really clear that if we, if we listen to that voice and give it authority, it will follow follow us wherever we go, and it will make our life and whatever activity we're doing miserable. So it's really, really great to bring that into conscious awareness so it doesn't make our life miserable. I also like the way you have many different varieties of practices we can use to become conscious of and start to shift those inner voices, because some of those practices in your toolkit might work for some people, others might work better for others, and so I think it's really worth exploring different practices and seeing what works for us in our unique mental configuration and our unique circumstances. Exactly. It's really, you know, the critic has a very particular lens and voice and a particular skill of of finding our buttons and seeing where our vulnerabilities lie, and so, yeah, it really behooves us to bring that lens of mindful attention and to listen to it to see whether it's truthful, to see whether it's useful or accurate, and also to see how much you believe it and listen to it and give it authority. And I was teaching a course uh, some years ago at a center called Spirit Rock where I teach, and this particular person is a theater director, and you know some careers like theater and arts and music are very prone to having more critic because they're exposed to some critics. And he was on the tree, and his critic was hounding him, and he was walking down the hill one day, and he came by himself, and the critic was on his case about something. And he realized, with that lens of the lens, he looked, he looked at his critic, and he realized, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts that I give particular attention to, particular value to, and if I don't listen to them and don't give it such authority, it's just a bunch of words, just like a bunch of you know, pop songs that, that bounce around our head in the background. So we really want to be mindful of what we do with it, when it comes, what causes it to get stronger, what causes it to pass away, and how much are we actually feeding it and listening to it and believing it. Because the more we believe it, the more we will suffer. I think the worst fate is to be unconscious, to not be conscious and just think it's reality or not take that step back and see it. Because if you are in in that space, then it's 
degrading your quality of life. It's driving up your stress levels, having all kinds of bad effects in your body, driving up your levels of cortisol, adrenaline, other stress hormones. And so it, the, that, that, that epiphany that that director had in that moment that um, it's just a bunch of thoughts is so powerful because the moment you start to take a step back from it, become aware of it, become conscious of it, then you begin to have a leverage point. But if you remain unconscious of it, then it has power over you. Exactly. Yeah. And we have we have that freedom of choice, but it does require we cultivate some awareness, some self-awareness, some mindfulness, and um, and then, of course, that corresponding quality of kindness. So we're not beating up us. Sometimes we beat ourselves up for having a judge, and we're judging ourselves that we're judging, and we're judging that we're so judgmental, and it becomes this never-ending loop. And so we have to take a step back, have a sense of humor, and, you know, listen to other more wiser parts of our mind than this very negatively oriented pattern. I had a funny Zen experience once with my spiritual teacher when I was in my teens, and he used to give hour-long talks, and they were long, and they were kind of boring, and sit around listening to them for, you know, for, for, the, for the whole hour, hour and a half, whatever long it was. And uh, so we, we were all used to go coming to the chapel, hearing him speak. So one day he showed up in the chapel, walked up to the podium, looked us all in the eye and said, Judgment is wrong. They turned around and left. <laughs> we all had a chance to meditate on that that for the next hour. Mark, I have so enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much for everything you're doing to help people be conscious of their judgments, inner judgments, and inner self-critics, bring them to attention and release them. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk, and I hope people found this useful. I think it's been very useful indeed. You can find out more about Mark's work at Mark Coleman. Dot org. And I urge you to take to make peace with your mind, to release your inner critic, become conscious of it, and to find that point of compassion in yourself.